0: Absolute Zero, by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 3, Warning, May Not Be Suitable for Small Children. In the lower left corner of the screens in yellow letters was the exact time left to the fateful hour of 6 p.m. The giant red letters were removed and the screens were split into two separate vantage points and the drama began to unfold. The prison corridor was on the right, and on the left was the scrawny Max Krager, speaking to the crowd and pleading with the governor to stop the execution. Governor, it is six minutes off. Please stop this insanity. You are a highly moral and decent man. Please let Willie Newman live. You have the power. Because the protest is persisting in an 11th hour attempt to save the life of Willie Newman. All the demonstrations, I might add, have been completely peaceful with no violence. I've been informed that Willie Newman has been taken from his cell by commission officials and is being escorted to the execution rooms. Said Shars as the screens converted to a full shot of the corridor. Again, again, we caution you, this is a gruesome sight are not allowed inside the prison and what you are seeing is being broadcast by the capital punishment commission from inside the prison walls there will be no narration from this point and we will return to you once the execution is over The sound of distant footsteps could be heard at the end of the corridor they grew louder as the door to the left of a window at the end of the corridor slid open two guards in bright orange uniforms held their prisoner under the armpits as they turned down the main passageway. Newman's head had been shaven since the morning interview, and he was dressed in a baggy, blue denim prison uniform. He looked smaller than he did in the interview, almost malnourished. Each of the iron bars rumbled open as the prisoner and the guards neared the camera. They rounded the corner to the execution room, and Newman gave a frightful stare to the camera pan to the right catching the three men as the massive steel door to the execution room was bolted shut. A second camera picked up the event as Newman was seated into the hardwood chair. Heavy black leather straps were tightened over his frail body as the defiant look in his eyes became distant. As they lowered the bowl-like hood with the attached electrodes to the top of his head he again gazed into the camera assuming a demonish character. They secured the bowl and attached another electrode to his left leg. All was made ready, and time was running out. Outside, the demonstrators were chanting, Let him live. However, the thick prison walls were impervious to the outside pleas. No further word was received from the governor, and the efforts appeared useless. Another camera inside the prison picked up the image of a stocky man, perhaps in his late 40s, who was vigilantly holding a bronze-chain watch in his hand. To the rear was a large lever he would pull, sending thousands of volts of electricity through the body of Willie Newman. The screens were split again, and the man on the right, Newman, strapped hopelessly into a wooden chair, was on the left. The seconds ticked away until the hour of death approached. The stocky man, like a cog in a larger machine, looked over to the commission members as he squinted. They nodded to him and he nodded back and he looked down at his watch until the minute hand reached twelve. Then he swiftly pulled the lever. A minute billow of smoke rose from the bowl that was clamped tightly to Newman's skull. The feeble man's body stiffened to a rigid mass. The current surged higher and higher into his quivering frame. In a desperate attempt to retain life, which was so quickly fleeting his body, he clenched his fist, so hard did he squeezed that the normal pinkish tones were wrenched to a stark white shade of tightened skin. For a few moments, he seemed to be winning the battle of fighting the restraints, the stretched leather chafing and gouging his skin. However, he could not possibly combat the massive jolt of electrical energy that flowed freely into his inner being, and soon his ball-like fists slowly loosened and turned upward. A yellow, sizzling pus from the swollen blister of the second electrode began to flow down the smooth skin of his legs. His body was lethargic, and the men assembled could detect the unforgettable and pungent odor of burnt human flesh. The current was cut. A doctor for the commission rushed up to Newman, put a stethoscope to his unmoving chest. He listened carefully, choking from the enveloping fumes, and he heard a faint heartbeat. Reluctantly, he shook his head. They would have to jolt him again. The stocking man, with absolutely no expression on his round face, wobbled up to the lever and pulled it a second time. Another puff of smoke rose from the prisoner's skull as the voltage increased. His skin grew scarlet and every inch of his body looked as if it were being fried alive. The unusual smell of singe hair and melted flesh permeated the small room once more. Some of the men coughed, and others gagged as the execution went forward. They let the current run for a few extra minutes, as they wanted the men dead for sure this time. Finally, it was ordered shut off, and the doctor came forward one more time. He raised his stethoscope, and it did not take him long to reach the prognosis as he uttered the words everyone had been waiting for. He's dead. In came men with orange uniforms as the doctor fled the ghastly sight. He undid the straps and quickly took off the bowl, exposing the charcoal abrasion that once was the top of Willie Newman's head. Anyone watching the broadcast could have seen the contorted face of Willie Newman at the time of death forever frozen in time. Hurriedly, they lowered Willie Newman onto a stretcher and whisked him out of the room. They ran down the corridor at a rather quickened pace, retracing the route that Newman had walked minutes before. The barred doors were closed behind them as they hurried past the end window and veered around the corner. There was a slight delay on the television screens as the last camera waited for them to arrive in the hearse, which was now backed up to a loading dock. The delay was short-lived as two more guards opened the rear door of the hearse. The other guards arrived with the body and slid the stretcher quickly inside and the door was closed. Seconds later the hearse pulled away from the loading dock and the television screens went blank with snow. television station returned to its normal coverage as the camera picked up the scene outside the prison. The demonstrators were melancholic as they had failed in their efforts. Crager and his lieutenants, in a state of disbelief, looked down at the platform amidst the gloomy scene. Shar attempted to restart his commentary. He spoke in a low voice, clearing his throat several times, as his image was superimposed over the front of the prison landscape. Although he was a veteran newscaster, he was visibly upset. Not a very pleasant sight. However, according to the law... What will be, will be. He paused as he was handed a yellow slip of paper and he looked down at the monitor as he spoke to the viewers. I have just been told that baseball star Brian Carey has informed Channel 7 News that he will soon be arriving to speak to the personage assembled here at the Craigville State Prison. Channel 7 will broadcast Brian Carey's remarks in their entirety before resuming normal broadcast operations. Harry, of course, is one of the greats of the game and began his career five years ago with the Miami Tropics, leading his team to three American League pennants and a World Series win over the Houston Astros last year. Not only is he an outstanding athlete in the game of baseball, but Mr. Kerry has distinguished himself as a skilled race car driver, parachutist, mountain climber, to name a few of his activities. On the other side of the coin, he's been an outspoken personality, to say the least, involving himself in a wide range of social issues, including the banning of nuclear power plants, the curbing of the defense budget, and a host of controversial issues. His speech here today, apparently the latest in his efforts. As Shaw spoke, a long blue limousine wedged its way through the crowd toward the platform. Darby O'Malley ran up to the rear door as the car slowed to a stop. The tall and lanky Kerry emerged from the car and the crowd began to applaud. Kerry was a strange-looking man, for his features seemed to be exaggerated. Long arms with oversized hands and a deep-sloping forehead, large nose and a block-like jaw. His thick black hair was trimmed on the sides, and his sideburns were squared off at the bottom of his ears. He was wearing a light green warm-up jacket with the orange trim and an orange baseball emblem. He caught sight of Darby O'Malley as he raised his bushy eyebrows. "'Story later, Brian!' "'Yes, that would be fine,' he said in a low demeanor as he was surrounded by people. "'Had your supper yet, Darby?' he said as he moved toward the platform. "'My treat!' Shaw described the advancing entourage as the camera zoomed in on large orange letters covering the back of Kerry's jacket, simply reading Kerry. I believe that is Jackie Blair, the former Chicago Bears running back, and Al Devine, the shot putter, who you see in front of Brian Kerry, clearing his way to the platform. Said Shaw as Kerry climbed the steps of the platform, waving to the responsive crowd. He turned and shook hands with the much shorter Crager. Mr. Crager, my presence here is long overdue. I'm at your disposal in the movement. I can only hope that I can be of some assistance. Thank you. I think they want you to speak, replied Crager, who smiled for the first time that day, revealing a space between his two front teeth. Kerry nodded and walked over to the microphone and adjusted it to his six-foot-four frame. They all looked up at this intense man, who some called a national hero, and others labeled him a good-for-nothing bum. He moved his thick lips over his teeth as he contemplated what he was going to say to them. I felt compelled, he said slowly, to Come here today. I've held back from what my conscience has told me to do concerning the great moral issue of our day. I've held back for too long. Over 30 men have been executed in the past year. Most citizens don't even care. He said, boldly sending a tingling feeling through the stomach of Gary Phyllis. A sadistic and animalistic culture which has authorized itself to sanction the genocide of its own kind not a genocide of race but a genocide of mind warped in cold minds sure but a genocide nevertheless that hearse over there escorted by two motorcycles that hearse contains the body of a human being yes a human being a human being that was just killed by the tacit consent of millions of other human beings. I do not, under any circumstances, condone what this man has done. A good guy, Willie Newman, was a human being first and a murderer second. He said, raising his voice and drawing a hefty round of applause and shouting. Many people, he continued through the applause, in high authority, have misplaced that concept. Why do we feel that committing further atrocity justifies the horrendous act of murder? We still cut off the hands of a thief, a bloody eye for a bloody eye? No, definitely not. I can't just buy that concept. Perhaps it's too simple just to say the two wrongs don't make it right, but maybe we just have to look at the simple and basic things in order to find the crux of any great moral issue. Let us kill no more. He shouted as they broke into a wild display of affirmation to what he was saying. Even the non-committal Phillips applauded as the huge man and waited for the noise to subside. Future generations, future generations hundreds of years from now will look back to these days with guilt and disdain, just as we deplore the more extreme forms of barbarism of the past. They will ask, why did they kill their own? Those not programmed are conditioned to the norm of society. Couldn't they revitalize these people into useful human beings? I think the answer to that question is yes. Man is a higher form of life, not a race of mindless avengers who think with their emotions, not with their brains. Let us kill no more. Let us not sit by and let this barbarism continue. Even, or even tacit consent is tantamount to pulling the switch. I urge people in this country to repeal the 27th Amendment, facing the Capital Punishment Act into oblivion. My friends, I do not claim to have all the answers, but I am willing to search for the answers and speak up against immorality wherever it exists. Let us speak up and search for those answers together and let us kill no more. Thank you. Thank you very much. Shaw came back in the air to close out the broadcast. That rousing appeal by Brian Carey, certainly more optimistic than we have witnessed here today. We wrap up Channel 7's exclusive coverage of the execution of Willie Newman. We now return you to our regularly scheduled programs. This is WFRZ in Craigville, New Jersey. From Phillips's vantage point, he could see Kerry talking to the smaller Crager, who did not say very much, merely nodding his head to everything Kerry said to him. Kerry extended his hand to the life leader and then followed his friends to the limousine. "'Darby O'Malley was stationed next to the car as Carrie approached.' "'Well, you got your pen and paper ready?' asked Carrie as Blair opened the door for them. "'I'll use this if it's all right,' she said as she held up her cassette recorder. "'Yeah, that's fine,' agreed Carrie as they slipped into the car. As the door to the limousine closed, people filled in around it like water flowing to an unrestricted container. They tried to catch a glimpse of Carrie through the windows as the car inched out and onto the road. Phillips watched the long car turn under the driveway, eventually climbing the ramp to the interstate and disappearing over the hill. Phillips thought, what powers carry must command? Slowly he returned to reality, making his way through the crowd and back to the MG. But as the sun was setting, he did not feel like going back to his house and took off down the highway. Join us next week for another episode of Absolute Zero by Robert P. Fitt Produced by Fitton Theatre of the Words.